Well, good morning. I can honestly say 24 hours ago I was not expecting on being here, and your pastor got a hold of me and told me what was going on, and I'm glad to be with you. Um, some of you know a little bit about my story, and I'm not going to have all of that today, just going to get a regular sermon of what you get about 24 hours in advance. Notice this is what you're going to get. If you've not heard me preach before, my style is like being shot out of a cannon. So uh, I don't know what you're normally used to and all that, but I am not Facebook Live worthy or that type of thing. I usually have a good spit radiance of about right there, and I go at it pretty good. So if you have your Bibles, I do not have a PowerPoint slide. So if you actually have your Bibles, remember when we used to have those things, uh, turn to Luke chapter 14. Now, as you're turning there, as I just kind of alluded to, I uh, have a real job. I'm not a pastor. I work at Bunker Hill Supply Company. I've worked there since 2009. I was hired in there, and in 2012, uh, Robin promoted me to general manager, and he said something very interesting that day. He said, now, I'm putting you in this position, and I want you to tell me things that I don't want to hear. Well, you can see where this story's going. So for a few years, I went ahead and examined the company and looked at things, and in August of 2015, I walked in Robin's office and, and said these words to him. Robin, the way our company is presently constructed, we are not financially viable for the future. Unless we make some radical changes in how we do business, there will not be a business three years from now. Well, you tell somebody who's owned the business with his whole family for 50 years those words, those are not exactly the great words that you want to hear. He took it fairly well and said, why do you believe these things? Oh, I had stats and graphs and numbers and all these things, industry standards, and basically just laid it out. He said, fine, general manager, you can tell the entire company what you told me. So... We brought in all the different plants, put them in a room. I gave them donuts to kind of, you know, make it better. And said everything that I just told you, except in a lot more detail. And said basically this, if we don't raise our sales 20% in the next 18 months, we're in trouble. Or if we don't cut 40% of our staff, we're not going to make it. The sales department said at least to my face, I don't think we can do any more than what we're doing. Behind my back, they said, he doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. The operations, at least two plants, said not only are we not overstaffed, we need more people. Again, that was to my face. Behind my back, it was, he has no idea what he's talking about. Well, it became a matter of will, and it became a matter of facts. And after much discussion and several years of that, we found out if we looked at not what we felt about those things, but we actually looked at what was right and what was the truth, we found out that we could do 20% more acres with 50% less people. And you say, boy, I don't know if I want to work for him. That's pretty tough. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you're in business, you know it is tough. But you say, how does that relate at all to being in church and God's Word? It is everything today 
with the American church. Because right now the American church is being told and is believing that we are doing all that we can possibly do. That our salvation is how we feel. That church has become what we want it to be. Folks, let me tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, it does not mean diddly squat what anybody in this room, starting with me, thinks about what God says. It only matters what God says. And thank you for those amens. If you want this to go faster, you say amen, I think you agree. If you don't, I think you disagree and it's on. Well, folks, let me tell you something. This is where we're at, and if you don't think this is where we're at, you're in denial of the American church. You get on the mission field, you get out of the United States, you get out there where it's tough, where your life is on the line if you believe in Jesus Christ, you'll find there's a whole different world of what Christianity is. And unfortunately, if we're bl blunt and honest with each other, sometimes what has become church here is an embarrassment before our Lord. You say, man, you are not the guest speaker we were hoping for. I didn't even know I was going to be here, all right? If you have your Bibles, look there in Luke chapter 14. Look there in verse 25. Possibly one of the hardest passages you'll hear and read in God's Word, but it's where we're going to be today. Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to, to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I'll let that sink in for just a moment. If you want some context of it, think this is not what it sounds like, I'll give you the context. Jesus had been doing miracles all over the land. And people were following him, and they were coming after him, and they were excited about what they had seen and what they experienced and what they felt when Jesus did these miracles. He fed the 5,000. He healed an abundance of people. He even brought somebody back from the dead, and the people were excited about this person because they thought maybe this is the Messiah. And folks, let me tell you something. That's the Messiah they wanted. It wasn't the Messiah they needed yet. It was the Messiah that they wanted. 
For 400 years they had begun teaching across the land about who the Messiah would be. But over time they'd gotten farther and farther and farther away from what Scripture said the Messiah would be. So by the time Jesus came on the scene, they were looking for a political Messiah. Sound familiar? Because we all know politicians can fix anything. <laughs> Holy smokes! This is what they wanted. This is what the religious leaders were teaching. They wanted to make Israel great again. They had red caps, and it said that across there. Or if you like your blue cap, it's they build Israel back better. There, did everybody feel better about that illustration? Heavens, I would hate it if anybody got offended today. Remember, I got a real job. I can go back to it. <coughs> Folks, that's what they wanted. They wanted a Messiah that would do what they wanted the Messiah to do. They wanted a Messiah who would provide them food so they didn't have to worry about working. They wanted a Messiah that would bring them back to the days of King David and King Solomon, and he could be all that they wanted their country to be. The problem was that was not Jesus' ministry. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to die as a sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. It wasn't just to do stuff that they liked. That's the Messiah. That is who Jesus said he was going to be. And they didn't like it. And the crowds, as you looked at this, when they heard these words that Jesus spoke, as you look in the verses that follow, they eventually started leaving. Because it wasn't what they wanted to hear. Jesus was not interested in crowds. Jesus was not interested in making sure that everybody felt welcome and everybody felt at home and everybody was comfortable in a nice, soft pew. He came for followers, not for a crowd. Now think about that in the terms of the church today. Does that mean we want to just offend people for no reason? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm talking about today. But Jesus wanted to give a clear distinction that following him was not about how you felt or how they felt. It was about the high cost of following Jesus. And folks, do not think for a second that there is not a cost for following Jesus. Look there in verse 26 again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Folks, that, this is real easy right here. You don't have to try to flower that thing up or anything. And I've my entire life listened to preachers and teachers do all kinds of theological gymnastics trying to explain this. This is what Jesus really meant. What did Jesus really say? He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, and then he lists off everybody in the family. Now, some of you are thinking that's not a problem if you knew my family. Jesus is not saying, hate your family. We have plenty, plenty of scripture that says, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. 
Well, that would have been a great place for an amen, men. Let me t I'll set you up again. When I give that dramatic pause, men, that's where you join in. God calls men to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Amen. Oh, see, look at you. You're going to get dinner here in a little bit. Talks about how women are, are to have sacrificial love for their husband and for kids and all this type of thing that goes on. I can just rattle off scripture. God is not saying hate your family. He is saying that the love for him should be such an undivided love, such an all-encompassing love, such an amazing love that your relationship with anybody else in family or in life pales in comparison to our love for God. Now, how do you say that to your kids? Because we are living in a time when everything is more important than God, right? Boy, those amens are getting harder to come by. Do you, all right, parents, let's start with you. Parents, do you love your children all the time? Uh, all right, Les, this is getting easier. Here's the biggest problem I see today in America. Every time you turn around, somebody can say, it's all about the kids. Here's the problem. If you love your kids, which is a good thing, more than you love God, that's your idol. If you love your job more than you love God, that's your idol. If you love that stupid car that cannot love you back, more than you love God, it's your idol. Well, we're getting there. Folks, you can just line it up. The problem we have today is we fail to see this massive difference. We want to say, well, I'll just love something less. That's not the point. You need to love your family. You need to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, here's your great chance to get even with somebody in the, in the church. Think of somebody you really don't like much here. Oh, come on, you're Baptist. I know you got it in you. Think it's my first rodeo? Look at them and say, you're pretty hard to love. But I guess I will. Now think about this. How lovely are you? Men, you want to ask your wife that? let's face it we're not all that lovable all the time are we in fact some of us would say it's even hard to love us because sometimes we're a little prickly ourselves well you get two porcupines together and try to get them to hug somebody's getting poked and that's the way we are as Christians our love sometimes is a little bit hard to do because we're all sinful by nature and you get a bunch of sinful people in a church guess what's going to happen yeah, a bunch of porcupine Baptists, aren't you? But if you think that's hard, put that in the terms of how much you're going to love God. Because if you can't love each other, you can't love God. And if you're not going to love each other, then don't even bother. Get out of Dodge. Start your own church. Oh, for, get a good reason, first of all. Let's when, redo your carpet. If you want to separate, you know, get a Baptist church fight and talk about color of carpet. Tell you what, you want me on that committee, I'm colorblind. Folks, I can't tell anything. I'd be like, okay. 
Folks, the problem we get into is this is we can concentrate on everything else in life. We can be consumed with everything else in life. And yet Jesus said, if you can't put all that in perspective and make me number one, you cannot be my disciple. The end. And if you think that's bad, look there in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Oh, this is the fun part of the sermon. Because we're living in America. And if you're in a Sunday school class or in a lot of churches, man, people just love talking about the crosses they bear. Somebody said something bad to me at work. It's my cross to bear. I heard somebody literally since the whole COVID thing was, well, now we got to get up and go to church on Sunday mornings. I can't sleep in anymore. I guess it's my cross to bear. What a bunch of spiritual weenies. We are pathetic. Your cross to bear is somebody said something tough to you at work. Think about working for me. Holy cow. Folks, let me just make it real easy. You want to go in context of Scripture? The cross in the first century meant one single thing, death. The Romans took the cross and crucifixion from somebody else. They tweaked it a little bit and made it the most awful form of torture and death that it was. When you said cross in the first century, everybody knew what it meant. It meant death. And what Jesus says right here is, if you're not even willing to take this and this devotion unto death, you cannot be my disciple. Let me say that in even easier words. If you weren't willing to do this, you can't be saved. Whoops. Now that just made it a lot tougher, didn't it? See, that disciple business is something we've kind of washed aside, but we all know what saved is, don't we? You think it's hard this morning to be a Christian in Afghanistan? You think when they're going house to house and checking your phone to see if you got a Bible app or checking your, uh, because they've made them register as Christians for the last 20 years, you don't think it's getting a little tough over there to decide who you're going to follow? Folks, there is a cost of following Jesus. He gives those two illustrations there in verses 28 and following. He says to the first person, or to, in the first account, if you're desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he, can, whether he has enough to complete it. Folks, it's a real simple example. If you're going to build a building, you better make sure you've got enough resources to build the building. Why not? What does it say in the scripture? If you don't, everybody's going to make fun of you. They're going to mock you because you started the project and didn't complete it. Remember, what's the actual discussion he's having here? If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you better count the cost before you jump in. You ever met anybody who didn't count the cost? Walk down the aisle bawling their head off, telling them they're going to be better, going to do this, that, or the other. How long ago was that? Have you seen them since? Everybody can be emotional. But have you counted the cost 
the same thing for a king. If he's going to go out to war, can you win the war? Because if not, you better send them out and make peace before they get here or you're going to lose the war. There is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost to salvation. And let me say that again because we have made salvation something it is not biblically. If nobody has been offended yet, this will be the good time to get really offended right now. Mark this, time, mark this down. What has become salvation in the American church today is walking an aisle, shedding a tear, saying a prayer about somehow Jesus coming into your heart, and then getting baptized, and somehow we've marked that is that's when a person is saved. Now, for all the Bible scholars here today, where is that in Scripture? You know how many times I've sat with moms and dads talking about their adult child, and the mom and the dad say, but I remember when they walked that aisle at church. I remember when they were baptized. I remember when they got saved. I don't deny that somebody has an emotional experience down here, but how does that match up with Scripture? I'm not asking you how you feel. Most of those guys at Bunker Hill at that time were convinced they could not do anything more. They felt like they had given all they could give. Turned out there was a lot more we could give. There's some people in churches today that are so given to the thought of a salvation experience, they've forgotten what Scripture says. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Folks, if we are not willing to have that discussion, then we are enabling people to go through life without addressing sin, without dealing with repentance, without ever counting the cost. And folks, let's make it even more plain today. We are enabling them to have a nice, slow path to hell. That's pretty tough. But is it tougher than the words Jesus just said? If you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. Folks, we've made salvation into something that is a negotiation with God. Folks, there is no negotiating with God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the creator. We are the creation. He is the master and Lord. We are the servant. If we do not understand where we are at in this relationship, we don't have a relationship. That's why he says there in verse 33, and he just sums it up. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you do not renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. You say, Les, I don't know if I can do that. I understand. We all like this world a little bit more than we want to admit, don't we? We all like the stuff 
that we've got in this world a little too much. So we begin doing that rationalizing game, and maybe somebody even in this room right now has been doing it during this sermon, where they start thinking, now, I know what the Scripture says, but I'm not a bad person. Let me just take care of that for you. And if you need somebody beside you to tell you this, they'll do it for you. Yes, you are. You're not a good person. That's, that's the joke that we had today. We're all like, I'm okay, you're okay, kumbaya. My, let's just all have a group hug. No. The Bible says that by our very nature, in Ephesians 2, we are sinful by our very nature. Nobody ever sat down with their kid and said, hey, this is how you're supposed to sin. Oh, we, we know it. We know how to sin. It is in us to sin. That is who we are. And when we play that game that God loves me enough because I've given him a little bit, I mean, I'm here on Sunday morning. Sunday morning Christianity is one of the craziest things in my mind. I'm going to come on Sunday morning whenever there's no camping, when there's no baseball, when there's no whatever else is going on in life. If there's nothing good on TV, I'll be at church, God. That's how much I love you. Wow. How does that hold up to Scripture? And folks, I think we need to understand that because when we start comparing our lives to what we think it is, then we run into Matthew 7 that says this. I'm sure your pastor has said this many times. In Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness man that's tough because basically what he's saying is this there's going to be people in church who will have been in church their whole lives they will have said that Jesus Christ is Lord but in verse 21 that doesn't make you a Christian. They will have cast out demons, prophesied, and done mighty works in the name of the Lord, and Jesus will say, you are still not saved. You say, Les, how, how does anybody ever become saved then? And here's the honest truth. Not everybody is saved. In that same Matthew 7, it talks about the wide gate that leads to destruction. It's an easy way, and many will go in through it. But it says the narrow gate that leads to eternal life is hard, and what? Few will find it. You say, well, Les, he's just talking about the world. Say in context, who is he talking to? The very religious people that all thought they were on the right path. Folks, that's Sunday morning in America. Well, what do we do about it? Let's get back to the Word of God. Let's let it define who we're going to be. Let's let it define what salvation is. Instead of trying to make everybody feel better about themselves, 
let's get on board with what God says it is. Because at that point, when the church is more concerned about what God says, then all of a sudden, all this other stuff doesn't really matter much in life, does it? Because that's when, when the persecution is going to come, and folks, it's coming. I don't care who you think you are politically or what party you think you're of. If you can't see persecution in America coming, you are blind as a bat. It may, in our lifetime, get very hard to be a Christian. We may have to make decisions about who and where we are going to stand. And it may cost something to even come into this building. If we're not willing to pay that price, what did Jesus say? You cannot be my disciple. Our Heavenly Father, we do not know what the future holds, but we know what you have said. And Lord, we trust you today, not with what we feel or even what we think. Father, we trust with your word that if we will put our trust wholly in what you have said and in who you are, Lord, we know that we can be saved. Lord, forgive us when we have played the game, that we've played the game with each other, that we've tried to be more concerned about what people thought of us than what you thought of us. And Lord, we desire to be your disciple, but Lord, we recognize today it comes with a cost. And then we're not going to hide behind a childlike faith that really is a childish faith. Lord, I pray today in this place that your spirit will so move in our midst that we will be honest. Maybe sometime for the first time in their life, they will be honest and say, I've always liked you, Lord, but I've never really loved you to the point of it costing me something. In fact, costing me everything. Lord, you know my life and these people do not, but you know the sinner that I am. You know the complete failures I've had in my life. And I could stand before this group of your people, Lord, not as anybody who knows better, but as someone who's fallen smack dab on his face and knows what it's like to have to rise up and call you Lord. Because I've tried to be my own Lord. You know that. Lord, I'm asking today that as we stand together in this time, that, Lord, we will recognize you are Lord, not me. Amen.